The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Fed can just print more money out of thin air, but the government's always going to be in debt to the Fed. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Dangerous World Podcast. Got a fun one going on here for you today. Uh, Spent a little bit of time doing research on it and going to kind of go all over the place, but it is sticking to a theme. Um, Actually going to do a quick movie review for you because it just really sets me up perfectly for the topic today. And I'm going to be talking about something that we've heard a lot about. Um, trying to take a different angle on this because I, I found some really interesting information about androgyny and like the whole trans movement and all this stuff. And I promise if, if you're rolling your eyes, because we have talked about this a lot on the news show and all these things, I think you're going to enjoy this episode. I actually really enjoyed the research for it. Um, there's a ton of androgyny in mythology and we're going to end the episode. It's going to actually be probably the last hour talking about all these different things. I mean, ranging from voodoo to magic to, you know, Mesopotamia to Egypt to Rome and Greek and all the, or Greece rather, all these different places that, uh, you know, we say society started in, who really fucking knows though, right? Um, And just some really, really interesting connections that I found. Now, the movie that I want to talk about before getting into all this crazy transgender stuff is Silence of the Lambs, okay? Um, I have a couple sound bites from the movie. I watched it twice in the past three days. Not exactly the type of movie that you want to watch a couple times in a row because it is pretty disturbing. There's some weird shit in the movie. But, um, you know, I watched it uh, just kind of casually watching it, and I just noticed some things really jump out. Hannibal Lecter saying that, no, Buffalo Bill's not transgender, he's just crazy, and all these things. I mean, it fits in so well. And some of the scenes in the movie that people made fun of and laughed at, like when Bill tucks his junk back and makes it look like he's got a vagina, he, I mean, everyone laughed at that. Everyone's like, what a fucking nut. And now today... Half the people that would see that scene would probably say, wow, that really is painting an accurate picture and and how brave Bill is, right? Even though he's cutting people's heads off and wearing their skin, um, you know, some people might say that this manic depressive individual or bipolar individual was a brave person. So, again, you know, I'm going to go through that. It's going to be a short review 
Um, and I'm just going to kind of talk about some of the symbolism there within. But most of the episode will be about these really interesting stories that I found in all kinds of different religions. And um, I, I do think that this is a giant cult. I've made that very clear in the past, but I've actually got some receipts here. And some of these connections are going to blow you away. So I'm excited to, to get into that. I'm going to end everything by reading an article that is loosely connected to all this stuff, but it just is such a, a really well done piece. It's from the Great Awakening Church uh, at WordPress.com. So kind of, a you know, obviously a small, smaller site there. But I thought this was just really interesting. It compares like you know, Greek gods to Christian demons to all these other things. And there's great charts. I'll post the charts probably on Instagram or something. Um, and I feel like it might help kind of paint the picture towards the end of everything here and uh, and just bring it all back around. So excited to get into it. But let's do the housekeeping up front here. You guys know I got to pay the bills, okay? Um, you're going to hear some ads throughout the episode, just a couple. If you don't want to hear the ads, you never have to hear them again on my show. If you go to patreon.com slash dangerous world podcast, $3 gets you all the full versions of the episodes. Now for the five and $10 tier people, I am actually going to work on a separate episode tying into this a little bit loosely. Um, that's actually a link based off of that great awakening church website. There's a link that redirects you to another one. Um, and basically just a ton of good information there. So that's going to be for the five and $10 people. I give them the bonus content. The $3 people get the, uh, full versions of all the episodes, dangerousworldpodcast.com for all the merch, uh, trying to come out with at least a shirt a month over there. If you're a $10 supporter, you get a 20% discount. I need to actually share that, uh, discount with everybody this month. No one's asked me for it though. Store has been a little slow the last couple of days, but uh, real happy with the store over there, and thank you for all that support. Pure Pet Wellness as well, okay? I've been using some CBD products from them for my dogs, and they love it. If you go over there to pay, purepetwellness.com, uh, you can get uh, any kind of great product for your animal. It doesn't have to be a dog, but uh, you know me and my dogs. I try to take care of these mutts, and uh, yeah, I just wanted to double check on the website here. Because when you when you type in Pure Pet Wellness, it's the second link that you'll get, um, at least from shitty Microsoft. But yeah, purepetwellness.com. It's got a cute little dog and cat with a house background. I love this stuff, man. My dogs seem to really like it too. Ghost Nose, not my co-host Ghost. My dog's also named Ghost, for those that don't know. Uh, his nose is getting nice and soft because I'm rubbing that um, balm on it. So... Really cool stuff. You go there, you type in DWP for your promo code, you get 20% off, I believe it is. So they're cool, man. They, they've they been uh, getting more into the podcast game. I know he's got a podcast as well. I believe it's called The Conspiracists. So uh, fun stuff. But um, yeah, I mentioned the article that I wanted to read. And uh, yeah, that's about it for the boring housekeeping stuff. But like I said, I wanted to start talking about Silence of the Lambs just a little bit here, Okay. Because the symbolism in it is just perfect. I mean, down to the names of the characters. Um, Clarice, you know, the name actually kind of translates from Clarissa and some other, you know, Roman Catholic versions of it, Latin versions. And it means clear or bright. Now, uh, Starling is the is Clarice's last name. Starling, it can mean bright star. It can mean all kinds of things. But a starling is a bird, Okay. There are some sexist overtones or undertones, I should say, to the movie. 
Um, you know, Clarice is in the FBI. She's having a tough time getting recognized for her hard work. And the whole time her boss is kind of, you know, being nice to her face, but then kind of talking shit and, and, uh, you know, kind of dissing her in front of the other men cops and shit like that. So the way I see it is that, uh, Clarice Starling translates to bright bird or bright chick, right? Uh, sounds goofy, but you know, just to kind of give you an idea of all the undertones of this movie, um, the warden of the institution, his name's Chilton. That's another gender neutral name. Uh, actually dating, it's a, it's a Jamaican name with English origins, Chilton. So kind of a, kind of just a, another sort of nod to androgyny there. And that's what this episode's about. So I figured it was important to include it. Uh, got the first clip coming up here, but you know, when you see the, when you're following the movie, there's this scene where Clarice finds this head in a jar at the yourself storage unit, right? Uh, Hannibal's telling Clarice to look into herself uh, see within yourself, and she makes the connection that it's too corny for Hannibal to say because he's a fucking off the charts genius. So she makes the connection that there is a place called Your Self Storage in some city that they're in. It might be Baltimore. Um, I know that the it's based out of Baltimore there, but uh, she finds this head in a jar, and it's this guy Benjamin Raspail, and this is one of Hannibal Lecter's former patients. I believe Bill was as well. But Raspail and Buffalo Bill had a sexual relationship. Two dudes do, getting a little weird, doing some gay stuff, obviously. And then, you know, he ends up finding his head in a jar later. But when, and you'll hear in this clip here, when Clarice asks if Raspail was a transgender, I mean, Hannibal says it like it is. He says, no, he's just a garden variety manic depressive. And it is, uh, like I said, this is the first clip here, and then I have one more for you, but it really does kind of just hit home today. And here's this first clip. His real name is Benjamin Raspell, a former patient of mine whose romantic attachments ran to, shall we say, the exotic. I did not kill him, I assure you, merely tucked him away very much as I found him after he'd missed three appointments. If you didn't kill him, then who did, sir? Who can say? Best thing for him, really. His therapy was going nowhere. His dress, uh, makeup. Raspo was a transvestite? In life? Oh, no. Garden variety, manic depressive. Tedious. Very tedious. And I just think of him as a kind of experiment. A fledgling killer's first effort at transformation. Okay, so you get a lot there, right? You get the idea of the manic depressive, you get the transformation, and it just is laying this really great foundation of this wild story. If you haven't seen it, you absolutely need to watch it, especially today. It, in my opinion, paints the picture that this transgender stuff is, and it used to be viewed this way, it's just mostly crazy people not fitting into their skin, not being comfortable with who they are. And there's a reason for this, okay? And the movie actually kind of explains this really, really well. There's a weird scene where Clarice is in a room alone with a bunch of male cops, right? She's FBI, she's superior to them, but she feels very inferior to them. They're all looking at her. She's an attractive lady. It's Jodie Foster, Jodie Foster before she uh, went full lesbian, which is okay, okay? I think it's weird, but whatever. 
Um, so, you know, all these cops are kind of like staring at her and, and she feels uncomfortable. She turns around, walks through a door and has this flashback to her childhood trauma when she's walking through the door. She sees a casket. She walks up to it. Um, and then it, it flashes back to her being a girl, seeing her father uh, dead in a casket. Right. This is uh, just a, a really, really well done kind of sneak peek into what the problem is with Bill. And it alludes to it later. The movie is is focusing on trauma. Right. It's the whole thing is based around Buffalo Bill, really. And um, it, so therefore, it's, you know, it's focused on a transvestite. Uh, murderer, and it's all about trauma, right? She's having to address her trauma. Buffalo Bill was never able to address his trauma, so he ends up getting a little weird. Right after that scene, there is a... um, They find this big cocoon in a murderer's throat. Now, this isn't an in-depth fucking review. I'm just kind of giving you some of the points here. They find a cocoon in a murder victim's throat. This person was found at the bottom of a river. Uh, this, This cocoon was shoved in this person's throat by Buffalo Bill. So they find this cocoon, cocoons, and metamorphosis and transformation. It's really underrated how much this movie is talking about psychosis in the trans community, the transformation that these people feel they absolutely have to have in order to be happy and feel like themselves is very, very present in the movie. Um... Now, th- this moth, it's a very rare moth that they find. It's called the Death's Head Moth. Um, this is the cocoon that they find in this murder victim's throat. Um, basically, Bill raised this thing himself. You find at the end that he's got a whole, you know, basically, uh, I don't know what you'd call a big uh, experimentation area or something. He's got a bunch of these things growing. It's kind of like his calling card. Um, there's diamonds cut out of women's backs usually. And also these uh, cocoons are found somewhere on this body. You find out later that the head in the garage, that Raspail character, had one of these cocoons planted in his skull as well. So I'll go to the second clip here and then we'll wrap up this uh, this quick little just idea uh, that I was having about this movie. Here it is. Second clip. Billy is not a real transsexual, but he thinks he is. He tries to be. He's tried to be a lot of things, I expect. And you said that I was very close to the way we would catch him. What did you mean, Doctor? There are three major centers for transsexual surgery. Johns Hopkins, University of Minnesota, and Columbus Medical Center. I wouldn't be surprised if Billy had applied for sex reassignment at one or all of them and been rejected. On what basis would they reject him? Look, for severe childhood disturbances associated with violence... Our Billy wasn't born a criminal, Clarice. He was made one through years of systematic abuse. Billy hates his own identity, you see, and he thinks that makes him a transsexual. But his pathology is a thousand times more savage and more terrifying. I mean, a lot right there, right? He wasn't born a transsexual. He was made one through years of trauma, right? Years of ma- being made feel to feel uncomfortable in your skin. You see this really, and I hate to say it because I'm white, but you see this with white kids today. They're told that they're racist, right? This was really huge during the 2020 election cycle too. Um, and then late into Trump's administration. Making people feel uncomfortable the way that they were born, right? Systemic abuse, years of it. 
make people have this trauma, and I'm actually going to talk about that a little bit here too, make people feel this trauma, and if kids are introduced into that system, and then they say that there's this easy out, you can just mutilate yourself, right? You can you can change your gender. This is going to fix your problems. It's very, very dark stuff. And, and I mean, it, like I said, the movie just does it so well. Um, last couple points here about the film. Clarice's trauma, right? It's not only her dad dying, but seeing a barn full of lambs being slaughtered when she, you know, kind of lives with these foster parents. And uh, that is why this movie is called The Silence of the Lambs. The Silence of the Lambs is a metaphor for Clarice addressing her trauma, her childhood trauma, and silencing that noise, right? In a healthy way, not just suppressing it, making yourself successful, right? Making yourself happy with who you actually are. You know, she's a redneck. She grows up, uh, you you know, with uh, what Hannibal Lecter says is a coal miner dad. Her dad was actually a cop. But, you know, she's got a southern accent that she kind of tries to keep low, low profile, And uh, she's not comfortable with who she is because she doesn't have confidence, again, because of the childhood trauma that she suffered. She needs to make herself not care about that. Buffalo Bill was never able to do that. He didn't have a support system. He didn't have any of the things that were needed to make him silence the lambs in his head, right? Again, it's kind of corny to say it that way, but that is what the movie is about. It's not about the screaming. Um, when Kim and I watched that, she was saying she thought it was, you know, oh, that's why it's called that because she can't, uh, you know, the, there's the the sounds playing over and over in her head. That's part of it. But the silencing of that sound and the silencing of that insecurity is what makes you a fucking functional person and not somebody like Buffalo Bill. Right. Um, but, yeah, she ends up killing Buffalo Bill at the end. And you see his home and there's all kinds of Nazi paraphernalia. There's propaganda pieces and shit in there. And kind of makes me think of something I'm going to reference briefly here in just a little bit with the order of the nine angles. And, you know, there's people that have talked about that and done good episodes um, on that subject. But there is a couple of demons that are associated with the order of the nine angles that are also transgender. So it was just really, really subtle uh, at the end. You see a couple swastikas here and there in the movie. And um, again, I just think that the movie is an incredible piece about the dangers of of transgenderism. This was made in, I think, the late 90s, or maybe the early 90s. I could have had that information ready for you. Early 2000s or or early 90s, I want to say. But it is the first one out of all these. Let me just double check there. Silence of the Lambs. It it does seem like it was made in the 90s now that I'm talking about it here. Uh, Of course, my computer's booking out. Yeah, 1991, the year I was born. Um, so yeah, I hadn't really seen it much and, and, you know, I'd seen bits and pieces of it and, uh, watching it as an adult, more of a conspiratorially minded person was just very interesting. So I recommend it to everybody. I think it's free most places to watch older movies. So check it out. Um, and, and yeah, uh, wild stuff. But anyway, moving ahead here, um, I do want to get into the, uh, some of these terms that that'll kind of I think paint a clearer picture as to what is going on here. There's this idea of postgenderism, okay? And the definition of postgenderism is a social, political, and cultural movement which arose from the eroding of the cultural, psychological, and social role of gender, and an argument for why the erosion of binary gender will be basically eliminated, right? 
Very interesting stuff. Post-genderists argue that gender is an arbitrary and unnecessary limitation on human potential and foresee the elimination of involuntary psychological gendering in the human species as a result of social and cultural designations and through the application of neurotechnology, biotechnology, and assistive reproduction technologies, post-genderists believe gender only hurts society, okay? This is a precursor to transhumanism, and I used to roll my eyes when I heard people say that, because just because there's the prefix trans in there, right, uh, it doesn't mean that it has to do with transgenderism, but in this case, it's 100% accurate. It, it even pulls up, if you just pull up Wikipedia, which is a place that I start a lot of my research, um, just to get the basic layman's kind of idea of what this shit is, this post-genderism is under the transhumanism portal, right? It has everything to do with transhumanism. So people that were saying that were spot on. So if you're talking about this post-genderist stuff, you have to target children. This is the way that they're doing it. And you see, I mean, we talk about this all the time. There is a good percentage of children who who do suffer from gender dysphoria also suffering from anxiety, about 20 to 30% uh, from most of the places that I checked. And how convenient is that? Because anxiety is such a cool, popular, fun disorder to have for people, according to all the social media, right? Uh, people put this in their fucking um, bios, like, I suffer from anxiety. It's like a badge of honor to suffer from anxiety. And when you have people that are trying to fit in, they're also going to do that. You speak this stuff into existence, you're going to be a weak pussy that suffers from a lot of anxiety, even from normal everyday things. Our phones also, all the technology around us. This is just throwing gas on the fire. There's a direct link to technology use and anxiety. This is not news to most of you, I'm sure, but how convenient it is that anxiety is almost a precursor to kids with gender dysphoria. Again, not feeling comfortable, having years of systemic abuse, just like Silence of the Lambs was talking about, right? Um, interesting stuff. There's all these, you know, the trauma that that's introduced to people on an everyday basis. It's almost normalized now. COVID, World War III, uh, inflation, these supposed hate groups. I'm not saying they don't exist but the media blows them up. They make them so, it makes it seem like you're going to walk outside and uh, throw a rock and hit a Nazi, right? Not true. I've never seen a Nazi in person that I know of. Uh, most people keep it quiet, rightfully so. Um, murder porn on TV, all these things, just to keep the public in a constant state of low-level fear, and young generations will grow up with anxiety, almost normalized. So so the anxiety is, is almost like... Uh, you know, the, the gender dysphoria is like a cumulative thing ba built off of anxiety. So scary stuff there. Um, but this is a religion. This is a religion to the parasite class here. This whole idea of post-genderism, the uh, keeping the peasants in fear, keeping them, you know, pliable, moldable, all that stuff. It's really all over the place. It's everywhere. It's, you know, there's a long list of strange connections that just are, are found all over the place. Again, ranging from voodoo to Egyptian culture to Mesopotamia, all these different places. So let's get into these. Let's let's talk about some of this, these weird connections that I found and some of the stories and mythology that aren't really talked about too much. Um kind of planting really subliminal seeds in a lot of this shit. And just some of the stories are, are, are incredibly interesting. This first one, 
um, you know, I wanted to start with Africa and then I'm going to move into the Americas, like the Mesoamericans and all that shit, the Mayans, all that stuff. Right. But in Africa, many societies around that Mediterranean basin viewed penetrative sex as purely dominant. It was a, a reason to breed. But if a man poked another man in the butt, that was a domination thing. You see that in like prisons and stuff, right? Hopefully you just hear about it because you, know, you don't really want to be seeing that firsthand. But yeah, this is a, a pretty well-established idea that penetrative sex is dominant. Hollywood seems to be similar, right? Uh, you hear stories of like the buck breaking and all this shit. Um, but yeah, it's meant to be a shameful act by the receiver and a dominant one by the giver. If you're not sure where the Mediterranean Basin is, it's like the uh, North Africa, Egypt, kind of goes around to Turkey, Greece, Italy, Spain, France, all that stuff right there. There's a couple others, but um, then when you think about that and you think about the the role of penetrative sex, as they call it, you see that a lot in Greece. Again, I should probably use the term you heard of that a lot in Greece, uh, Spain, France. I mean, you hear about it in all these places, not so much in Egypt that I knew about. This story of uh, Horus and Set's gayness for one another, I never heard at all. And I used to be really, really into Egyptian history and stuff like that. But apparently, Horus and Set uh, had a little gay run-in. And, and it's just a, a, a kind of an interesting one here. So the story of, uh, of, of this goes that uh, basically Horus and Set, they're trying to figure out who is going to run Egypt. Who's going to be the good guy? Who's going to be the bad guy, it sounds like. Now, Set uh, kind of seduces Horus. It actually says that he compliments Horus on his ass. I'm not joking. I'm not trying to be funny. That's what it says. So uh, I guess Horus is saying, oh, really? What do you, what do you think? And he, he bends over. Set runs over. tries. He thinks that he penetrates uh, Horus and makes him his bitch, basically. But Horus pulls the old switcheroo, tightens his thighs up. Set enters his thighs, kind of uh, shoots his uh, gentleman's relish, as we'll call it, on Horace's thighs, okay? So Set's walking around telling everybody he made Horace's bitch. Horace knows that this is not the case. He takes uh, Set's load, throws it in the Nile River, and, you know, it's gone. Now, what Horace does to get back at Set is not as gay, but kind of strange, he takes his uh, his stuff and he shoots it on a head of lettuce, okay? This is Seth's favorite food. Now, lettuce, for some reason, is also seen as phallic by the ancient Egyptians. Probably the romaine lettuce, right? Not like the iceberg bullshit that we have today. Um, takes that, feeds it to Set. Set eats it, okay? And so now it's sitting in Set's stomach. When they go to the gods to find out who's going to be the good guy, who's going to be the bad guy, all that shit. Um, Set tells his story of dominating his nephew, by the way. Horus is Set's nephew, which is strange. Um, they call, the gods call on Set's baby gravy, and it answers from the river. So they know that he's lying, right? Now, when they call on Horus's dude milk, it answers from inside Set. And then they they realize, well, holy shit, uh, looks like Horus is going to be the good guy and you're going to forever be associated with evil because Horus basically made you his bitch. So they all point and laugh, call him a beta, call him gay, and now he's the bad guy, right? Interesting stuff. There's all kinds of stories around that. There's other stories that it was consensual. 
um, that they had, you know, gay love for each other that wasn't forced or anything. I don't know. Uh, obviously, I, I'd never heard that story before. I prefer the fun um, story that I just told, though. So that is a, a fairly accepted story in Egyptian mythology. Now, there's some other African tranny gods. You got, uh, I think these are Dahomies. Um, and I'm not even, you know, it's just it's spelled like that. D-A-H-O-M-E-Y, Dahomies. Um, th- you have this Maulisa formed by a masculine sun god and then a feminine moon god. The Shona, and this is one entity, uh, the Shona people of Zimbabwe worship Mwari, um, who occasionally splits into separate male and female aspects, but it's mostly uh, natural form is androgynous. So it's not just Baphomet here is what I'm getting at. There are countless gods that, uh, or, or entities or deities, I should say, that were... I mean, much further ahead in time than um, than uh, Baphomet, right? Baphomet's based on a lot of these things. When we hear about transgenderism, Baphomet is referenced a lot, and you are starting to see that pop up a lot more, which is scary, but there are... Uh, Baphomet's almost kind of like the straw man, right? I'm not saying he's a good guy, but he's the one that everyone points fingers to. It's in Christianity, that's a scary entity, and so that's that's the easiest one to point at. But when I get into these Americas and stuff, there is just some wild connection, especially with voodoo. Um, but also, I found this kind of interesting as well here. In the Yoruban tradition, mostly women possess bodies, although men can do it as well. So you have mostly women demons in this Yoruban tradition, another African tradition. Um, but if it is a man that is uh, possessing somebody, the man is still called a bride inside them. The bride is basically a demon inside of a person. Strange, right? Because people get married to brides. Men get married to brides, rather. Um, interesting shit. I mean, just that, that whole culture there, especially the older stuff in Africa, is 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 wild, to say the least. Now, I, I want to move into the Americas here. Um, the Mayan god Chin, which, you know, I hadn't heard of Chin. I did I did a little bit of uh, research on some of the Mayan gods and the Aztec gods. I guess mostly Aztec gods uh, talking about the five sons and all that shit, right? But this Mayan god Chin was said to have introduced homoeroticism to the Mayans. And noble families were actually encouraged to purchase boys as sex slaves for their sons. Uh, they would essentially be married, but their culture didn't allow for same-sex marriage, I guess. So they would kind of just make it like, oh, these guys are friends. It seems kind of like a, a workaround to, uh, to you know, if you're a dude to bang a dude, right? It's like, no, he's my brother. And there's actually terms like that in Islam and Christianity, too. So, again, it's mostly coming from noble families here, right? The And the noble families back then were just as shitty as our quote-unquote noble families here today. But they have access to this shit, and they get bored of their power, and so they start doing weird shit like this, buying sex slaves for their sons and encouraging them to have sex with boys instead of women. It's wild stuff. Um, You have the corn or grain god that seems to be confused as to what gender it is, too. It's an androgynous god. And this is where... You know, the, the third gender stuff kind of dates back a, a long time ago. I'm not sure if it's in, like, Mesopotamia or if it starts really here. But third gender is a concept where individuals are categorized either by themselves or by society as not man, not woman, neither one. It's androgynous. It's both, essentially, right? 
And it's also a social category that's in societies that recognize three or more genders. India does it. Uh, all kinds of different... America, the West, we do it big time. And this term, uh, the third, is usually understood to mean other, right? So kind of interesting because you've got binary and then you've got other. And that is third gender. And there's an old idea to fulfill this third gender role. Um, it's almost like like prophecy or destiny for man to fulfill this third gender role. And it seems to have gained mainstream attention really in 1990 in, I mean, guess guess where? If I was to tell you where the third gender became mainstream, if I had a, if I put a gun to your head, I said guess, where would you say? You'd probably say Canada, and you'd be right, because Canada is lover of all things gay. It's very strange. Now, the Canadians that we affiliate with here, they're all really you know awake and understand that, and they would be the first to tell you that, yes, uh, our government loves this degenerate culture, right? Uh, actually, this started in Winnipeg, and uh, they coined the term two spirits there, and this they did this at the Lesbian and Gay International Gathering. Pretty wild stuff. And I guess the term was coined to replace the outdated term Berdachi. Uh, Berdachi is basically, it sounds kind of like a, a Native American term or like an indigenous term for like fag or something like that, right? It's it's a slur, basically. Berdachi, never heard it. If anyone's offended by the term, sorry, I don't know exactly what it is, but it sounds like two spirits was to replace that. Oh, he's not a Berdachi, he's a two spirits. And they use this to describe mostly men who have feminine traits. Again, androgyny is everywhere with all this stuff. But what a wild name, two spirits. Isn't that weird? It's like the whole uh, the whole idea of a single person being called they or them. Like it implies that there's multiple personalities in there. Or manic depressive or bipolar disorder like Hannibal Lecter says in Silence of the Lambs. Right? I mean, it's fucking weird. The two spirits term, at least on the surface, kind of nods to that too it nods to the yeah there's two spirits in there there's one spirit that's human and then there's another spirit in within him or her that these people are are kind of taught to embrace right don't suppress that those weird feelings address them head on and act on them right not reconcile them just act on them right i don't like that shit at all i mean it, 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 it that alone leads me to believe that these people are willingly allowing spirits to enter their bodies and maybe control them, right? Um, I hate you. Anytime I use them properly, I still feel weird about it because of how much it's pushed. But if you if you if you call yourself two spirits, it's almost like you're trying to manifest that you have two spirits. Again, bipolar, manic depressive, transgenderism. It's the same shit. It's so wild. Again, uh, hopefully it kind of paints the picture why I talked about Silence of the Lambs in the beginning here, because it's it's profound with this information. Um, I'll continue on this this native angle or First Nation angle um, a little more because it, it really is interesting. A lot of the culture there uh, seems to be like Inuit shamanism, okay, and and the first two humans were these beings called, and I'm going to butcher these names, Akajusi and Umarnituk. Okay, sorry. Uh, both of these were men, though. Both of these entities were men. And to populate the earth, they had to have gay sex, okay? And uh, Umar and Atuk, that second one, got pregnant. I guess maybe they, they you know, drew sticks and he got the short one. And so he was the one that would be the birth giver, the birthing person, if you will. 
And uh, I guess by some magic ritual, they they put a spell on him uh, and and turned him into a woman, made him have a vagina. He was still a man looking man, looked like a dude, but had a vagina. And um, that's how, according to Inuit shamanism, the world started. Okay, weird shit that it was basically two dudes. It wasn't a man and a woman. And I understand that in a lot of religions, especially older ones, all the good guys are men, all the bad people are women. What a weird story to talk about, though, right? I mean, can't there be like good women, good men, bad bad women, bad men kind of thing, right? In Christianity, you see a lot of demons being being women, too. So it is interesting, but, oh, man, what a gay story that is, huh? Two dudes, and they're like, man, we got we to gotta populate. Who's going to be the girl? And then, you know... Apparently, like I said, Umarna Tuk was uh, was made the bitch, but interesting stuff nonetheless. Now, notice I said shamanism there, right? This is some mystic bullshit that that you know the, the creation story isn't even the slightest bit logical. Like two dudes, one gets turned into a chick, right? I understand, you know, uh, Eve was created from Adam and all that stuff, but I don't know. It, it's just a, a wild, wild story there. Turning men into women with spells, or in modern times, we might call these magical spells or these magical rituals that they called spells, we might call these procedures, right? Because, you know, these old cultures, they see them as spells. They would see that as a spell, putting someone to sleep for a couple hours, and then they wake up, they go to sleep as a man, wake up as a woman, right? We obviously see it as very logical, and there's a process to what happens when that goes on, but it is almost like a spell. It almost is like some sort of magical, dark magic shit. I'm going to take your dick and flip it inside out. Now you're a chick. You know what I mean? It's weird. It's it's so interesting um, that, that the terms that were used back then, we can kind of still make connections to these now. Uh, transgender procedures would be considered spells back then in this time, in the shamanistic uh, again, it's Inuit shamanism. Um, don't know a ton about those people, but again, you know, based on my research here, they would call what we do here spells and black magic. So wild shit. Now, speaking of magic, there's a uh, this now female Umarnatuk that I was mentioning is also responsible for introducing war into the world through magic. Okay, this is this war was produced by Umarnatuk to curb overpopulation. So in their minds, men and women get to get together and then they create something. They create more people. These people need to kill or destroy each other so that the earth can stay in balance, so that it doesn't overpopulate. And it makes you wonder if the ruling class or this parasite class, I like that term a lot more, if this parasite class follow this ideology, right? We let these people breed, right? In their overinflated minds, they say, we let these people breed. So we have to assume the responsibility to take some of those people away. Sometimes a lot of those people away. If you're talking like World War II and shit, war is supposedly to curb the sins of population. It's it's just a, a kind of interesting thought there. Now, there are a lot of two-spirit deities in Native American culture and I think this is why you have a lot of people, usually new agers or like these woke, you know, white people that, you know, talk a lot about cultural appropriation, but then they got their whole houses decorated in Native American stuff and they're white as the driven snow. Um, 
you know, they talk about embracing your divine feminine energy and, and they, they look at this culture a lot and they try to push it. On. I'm not saying Native American culture is bad at all. Like, uh, it's actually very, very interesting. And there's a lot of good people that, that you know, I don't need to fucking virtue signal here. But I do think that the, the pushing to that, uh, embracing it from all different... I mean, Native American culture is for Native Americans. White culture is for white people, right? Doesn't mean that we can't, you know, have this melting pot and shit. But when I get suspicious whenever this stuff is is really kind of, um, you know, when that, whenever there's a certain group of normal people that are put up on a pedestal, whether it is Native Americans or, or black people or whatever, I get suspicious of that. And I think that there has something to do, at least from this perspective, of embracing the two spirits, right? Embracing that third gender, and and propping them up and and you just see a lot of it embracing the feminine energy uh if you're a woman embracing your masculine energy getting yourself to that point where you can tap into your feminine traits and your masculine traits it just seems like one of these old cult-like ideas and i i think it's a really sneaky way to do it, it, it it's it's uh again it's just something that is suspicious to me um i there's a lot of people i actually respect that talk about uh, embracing the divine feminine, and it's actually one of the building blocks to get yourself to be a perfect person. I disagree. I, I think that if you're a man, you can be a man. If you're a woman, you can be a woman. There are masculine women. I, I don't think that you have to be everything, right? There's this goal to be the perfect person for everybody. It's like, man, just fucking just shut up. Um, but anyway, let's move on to my favorite uh, connections here that I found that are just... I mean, voodoo is is incredibly, incredibly interesting to me, and I, I've obviously I don't practice it, but just the it, it's scary, right? It gets this, it gets a, a a feeling going. There's the ideas that the Clintons are big into voodoo, especially Bill, and just everything around voodoo automatically interests me. But there are some. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned these with the Care Bear things. There's some of these Loas, and there's a lot of Loas out there, right? Um, there's a lot of these spirits, basically. That's what Loas are, these voodoo spirits. You can ask these different Loas or spirits for different things. And uh, what do they call that? Like a pantheon, right? There's a, there's several of them. And there's actually a lot of trans references in voodoo. In a ceremony, you have the priests, which go by a different name, but basically they're priests. And priestesses which go by a separate name from priests, along with initiates. And they dance around, some usually around a fire or something. And one initiate will become possessed by whichever Loa they're calling on, or maybe a random Loa. And the Loa may be male or female, and the initiate will be maybe the same or the opposite sex or gender of the Loa that's possessing them. But that initiate will take on the characteristics of that Loa. So if it's a man that's being possessed by a female Loa, uh, Urzuli is the is one that rem- that I remember. If a man is possessed by Urzuli, who also has trans traits, they would probably act very feminine during their possession period, which is strange, right? So it does seem that most, if not all, Loa in Voodoo at least have both gender traits or or kind of blur the gender lines. I'm not trying to talk out of turn here. I'm by no means an expert in voodoo, but like I said, I I have been looking into it a couple weeks in a row here, uh, just kind of, you know, quickly. And these are the connections I've made in my head. 
There's a very, very interesting character here, or a Loa, rather, spirit, again, called Jid Nibu. And it may be Jide Nibu, two separate words, Jide Nibu. And I encourage you to look this up if you're interested. G-H-E-D-E, new word, N-I-B-O. And this spirit cares for those who die young. Listen closely here, okay? This G, we'll call him Jid Nibu, okay? I keep switching it up. But Jid Nibu cares for those who die young. And he's sometimes depicted as an effeminate drag queen and inspires those he inhabits to overly sexualize themselves. Did you catch that? I mean, did did you did you? There's a is this what fucking drag queen story hour comes from? Is this some voodoo shit? Is drag queen story time voodoo? Again, a spirit caring for those who die young, whose spirit leaves young, and is depicted as an effeminate drag queen. Are these drag queens the priests and are the parents taking their kids to drag time story or whatever the fuck it's called? Are they bringing sacrifices or are they bringing initiates who get possessed by some energy that they encounter at these drag time story hour events? These seem like rituals. The last thing I would have thought is that drag time story hour. I keep fucking butchering the name. What is it even? Drag drag queen story hour, drag queen story time, whatever. The last thing I would have thought is that this is a voodoo ceremony. But, I mean, it's clear as day to me. This is the most clear thing. That's why I said this is my the most interesting one to me. If there's any pushback on this idea, please let me know. Because I think that I found something incredibly, I mean, profound here. I'm not trying to blow smoke up my own ass here. But I've never heard this mentioned. That this is a voodoo ritual. You can find this yourself too. I'm not embellishing. I'm not making. I'm not. I'm not throwing the word drag queen out there. They say that he is depicted as a drag queen. He wears a top hat sometimes, um, but I don't know. It seems like these drag queens are either knowingly or unknowingly they're they're emulating a spirit who takes kids' souls. I think it's just it's wild. Um, this G Nibu is, uh, I'll actually, I think that I have the definition here. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so look. G Nibu, uh, Haitian Creole, G Nibu, it just spelled slightly different, is a loa who is the leader of spirits of the dead in Haitian voodoo. Formerly human, G Nibu was a handsome young man who was killed violently. Excuse me. After death, he was adopted as a loa by Baron Samedi and Maman Bridget, who are two Loas as well. He's envisioned as an effeminate nasal dandy uh, who wears a black riding coat or drag, okay? And he inhabits humans. Uh, I'm sorry. When he inhabits humans, they are inspired to levacious, lascivious, whatever, sexual sexuality of all kinds. Nibu is the special patron of those who die young, Okay. There it is right there. Nibu's the special patron of those who die young. He wears a black riding coat or drag. Uh, when he inhabits humans, they want to have sex and they they sexualize themselves. That's what we're doing at these Drag Queen Story Hour things. We're sexualizing children, okay? We're, we're allowing this to go on. And this, in my mind, is some sort of voodoo ritual. Maybe the people that are participating in it don't know. I don't give them the credit to not know. I think they know. You're either stupid or you're an asshole in this situation, Right. I don't think that there's anyone listening to this show that is taking their their kids or their grandkids or whatever to any of these events. But 
try to change my mind that this is not a fucking voodoo ceremony of some kind. It 100% is. Wild shit. Um, so, yeah, just uh, G. Nebo, again, look look that fucking guy up and, and, and tell me that what we're seeing at these drag queen story hours and the, the horrible mindfuck that goes on in these kids isn't some sort of possession. These kids are undoubtedly going to be very different after they leave these ceremonies um, or, or these hours, right? Maybe not visibly, but they are absolutely confused after they see a man dressed up as a woman, a man dressed up in drag, reading them a story, being very kind to them usually, right? Weird. Dark, dark shit. Um, anyway, let's move on. I hope that you enjoy that because that is just a fucking wild. Not enjoy, but you know what I mean. It's just like mind-blowing shit to me. Um, in Orthodox Christianity, though, let's move on here. There's a term called adelphopoia, I believe it is, and I'm probably butchering that, but it's basically when a church recognizes a union of two men, but it translates to brother-making. This is what I was talking about with the African ceremony, I believe it was. It honestly, again, just seems like a loophole for two Christian dudes that like each other to say, like, hey, no, we're brothers. We're going to live together. We're going to be roommates. Might suck each other off a little bit every now and then. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's strange. They do weird shit when the lights are off. You know the drill here. Um, again, I know people that that you know are, are uh, Orthodox Christians, and if that is not what that is, let me know. Um, I do know that a lot of people do have blind spots with their own religion and things like that. Not to say that Orthodox Christianity is bad. This stuff is in every religion, right? This stuff is literally in every religion. I'm attempting to prove that here. Um, but yeah, just, you know, calling it one thing and and uh, w- when it's really another is just it's more deception, right? Uh, let's let's brother make, but you know we're brothers that fuck. It's strange, very strange, uh, and it is a union again, not not considered a marriage, but it is a union. Now you also got Saint Sebastian in Christianity, supposedly the very first gay icon in the Christian world. Again, flaws in all these religions, flaws in all these stories. It's tough to know exactly what's real. Um, but yes, uh, I have not heard this individual discussed before, so it is what it is. Now, I mentioned the Order of the Nine Angles when I was talking about um, the end of Silence of the Lambs, where there's the Nazi paraphernalia around this trans dude. I brought that up because there's these two demons that are associated with the Nine Angles back-to-back here. One is Budsturga and Azangin. Um, now, Basturga is a blue ethereal entity related to the o- ONA. Uh, I'm trying to abbreviate it there. The 13th path, although this has I3TH instead of 13TH for 13th path. I don't know if that's significant or not, um, but I'll just take that again from the, from the beginning there. A blue ethereal entity related to the Order of Nine Angles, 13th path. Tradition relates it to a dark god of female aspect trapped in a vortex between the casual and acasual spaces. In one sense, represents hidden wisdom, but generally dangerous to sanity. Again, a psychotic reference to this god that is androgynous, or this demon, rather, excuse me. This demon that is androgynous, seen as both. It helps people astral project, supposedly, but this is known to be a androgynous god Dangerous to sanity. Interesting, right? Now, uh, that was Bud Sturga. Now, uh, Azignin. I'm sorry, Ananigin. I mean, dude, these names are so hard to pronounce. Azagnin. 
is the mother of all demons who lie waiting in the earth in the pantheon in the order of nine angles. Somebody very similar to Bud Sturga. Um, I looked these up separate. There's were like seven different demons that were all connected in some way. And these are two different entities, but they said they're similar. So I'm assuming that that second one that I'm not even going to try to name again. I think if you say it three times, it pops up behind you or something. So whatever, whatever that is seems to be androgynous as well. Um, out of all the five, these two seem to be the ones that fit the bill. Now, if you haven't heard of the ONA or the O9A, it's the Satanic and Left Hand Path Occultist Group, which is based in the United Kingdom, and associated groups are based in other parts of the world. Claiming to have been established in the 1960s, it rose to public recognition in the early 1980s, attracting attention for its neo-Nazi ideology and activism, describing its approach as, quote, traditional Satanism, um... It has also been identified as exhibiting hermetic and modern pagan elements in its beliefs by academic researchers. So, it's possible, out of all the things that Silence of the Lambs does talk about, there is also a ONA reference in there. Again, this was made 30 years after the inception of the ONA, supposedly, and uh, they may have been low-key you know, connecting the, uh, this Buffalo Bill character to the ONA with the, the swastikas and with the transgenderism and shit. Um, interesting, nonetheless. So what do you say we move on to some of the societies that uh, predate America, the the mighty strong America, which is looking more and more like Rome every day. Um, I wanted to move into the, the Greco-Roman, the Roman and Greek ship. And then after that, I'll cover like the the old, old stuff, Sumerian, Akkadian, Babylonian, Assyrian, Phoenician, Canaanite, all those ones, right? Um, But yeah, the Roman and Greek, you got several stories of homosexuality and uh, slightly less of transgender and androgyny. There's this one of Artemides, um, or maybe it's Artemides, turning the hunter from Crete into a chick after she sees her bathing. I guess it's a punishment. Um and that kind of is interesting every time it's a punishment from a man to turn into a woman or vice versa you know it seems from uh, from the roman perspective here it and others other uh, religions it seems to be a punishment so why is this if this is the case if if our elite is trying to emulate that are they punishing the peasants that are so moldable that they will cut their dicks off um it, it Like I said, it seems like a ritual. It seems like some sort of punishment. It seems sacrificial in nature. And I think that uh, that there's more dots being connected here. Uh, there's this uh, Canius, and I'm probably butchering that. I don't know how to pronounce it. See, that's the thing. When I do research, I'm reading. I don't ever listen to anybody else say these things. So if I'm butchering any names, I'm sorry. Uh, infamously uh, Episcopal, right, instead of Episcopal or what Epis- Episcopalian, yeah. I mean, I don't listen to people. I don't really listen to any bullshit. So, you know, my bad for butchering words, right? Um, but, yeah, I, I, I do uh, get a good laugh when I uh, when someone calls me on a mispronunciation. It's a good time. Makes us, uh, you know, just normal over here, right? We're just all, uh, we're just all trying to learn shit. But this uh, Canius was originally a woman named Canis, uh, <laughs> which I'm told sounds like anus. But Canis was transformed into a man by the sea god Poseidon, who is connected to a lot of these transgender things. And when you look into the stories of, of uh, you know, the, this whole period, you see, and Poseidon's the Greek version, I believe, too, right? So he, uh, 
is connected to a lot of these transgender stories. When a, when a dude's being punished gets turned into a woman or, or vice versa. Poseidon seems to be the one doing a lot of turning. I didn't find anything in modern times that relates to Poseidon as far as, um, you know, maybe like like Lecter was mentioning, the Johns Hopkins Hospital. You wonder if they've got like Poseidon imagery around there. Some of these places that really endorse transgenderism like that. Uh, but he's, he's behind a lot of this in Greece. There's other versions here too that say that Poseidon had sex with the uh, Canis lady. And then after they had sex, she asked him to turn her into a man. Uh, there's other versions where Poseidon raped uh, Canis. All these different things. So interesting, right? Um, but yeah, turned into Canius from Canis. And uh, just, yeah, uh, I always just find this stuff just just weird when there's gender transformation in any of the stories here. Now you have um, Iphis, that was a child of Talusa and Ligdis in Crete. Born a female, raised a male, who was later transformed by the goddess Isis into a man. And Isis was joined by a bunch of other, sounds like mostly Egyptian entities, Anubis, Bastet, I- Apis, excuse me, uh, Harpocrates, Osiris, and the Egyptian serpent was joined when uh, this conversion happened. Why is there a serpent in quite a few of these stories, Right. Um, there's a rainbow serpent that we'll get into later. There's a couple rainbow serpents in like the Islander religions and Aboriginal religions and stuff like that. But I don't know if there's a, if there's a serpent present when we're doing some ritual, I don't want any part of it as far as I'm concerned. But then there are people out there that tell you that the snake is the good guy. I I personally think that that's misinformation planted to, uh, get us to start saying that we're on the the side of the snake and all that shit. Uh, you know, snakes damn same thing as a dragon essentially. It's it's personified in the in a similar way. Um so yeah, if a snake's if a snake's involved, get me the fuck out. I'll uh I'll take my chances with an eagle. Uh but there's some, there's a little bit about Roman Greek. You could go on for hours. This could be an entire episode. Uh, of all the gay stuff in there. I'm not really trying to focus too much on the gay shit. It's mostly the transgender stuff, right? So um, you can go for days talking about all the gay shit in Rome. But uh, here in the old, old, you know, religions and societies, Sumerian, Akkadian, Babylonian, Assyrian, Phoenician, Canaanite, these are interesting too. These are old, old things, right? Some of the first, if not the first with um, Sumer, right? Now, you've got these beings, the seven, like, supreme beings in uh, Sumerian lore uh, or history, mythology, whatever you want to call it. An, Enlil, Enki, which a lot of you have heard of Enki. Nin, Hursag, which is a big one, too. Nana, Uti, and Inanna. I think I nailed all of those. Um, But this this Nin, Hursag was known as the mother goddess and created the people that, and, and she made all kinds of, you know, men, women, some described uh, people as men without a penis, uh, some others were women who could not bear children, and the people with no sexual organs, and so on. There's all kinds of different names for this third gender. People today lump all of them in with that two spirits shit, that third gender, two spirits thing that I mentioned, and I guess Enki was the supreme being of all these things, and he assigned roles to all of these third gender people. Interesting concept, something I'd never heard. And it's really, really kind of wild that in, in this Akkadian variation of that story, 
where Enki tells Nintu, or, you know, that's the Akkadian version of Nihursag, tells her to put all of these beings, these, these third category people, into this section where he includes an infant-stealing demon. Apparently that was some entity that was there that was considered to be part of this third gender. So you've got men without dicks, uh, chicks with dicks, and, you know, all these other things. Uh, women who can't bear children and all this stuff. And then an infant stealing demon who is included for some reason. Again, another reference, uh, you know, in, in different cultures where there are this third gender included in with some kind of demon that has something to do with stealing children or protecting children's souls, right? This is another thing that's repeated here. There's snakes involved in a lot of them. There's there's reptiles involved in, in some of them. And then there are demons that have uh, some affection for children for some reason. So um, obviously we know this is kind of a, a common idea that children have pure souls. Maybe this is why there's a there, these there's specific demons that go after them. Maybe they're like the lowest level demons that really can't do much. So they just attack the purest people in the purest form, which is a child. Um, maybe that's why these sick fucks are so attracted to them because they're not corrupted in any way. Um, either way, it is incredibly dark. And like I said, it's repeated over and over again in all these different cultures, the infant stealing, the protection and all that stuff, right? Um, I know I repeated that a few times, but I, I think it's very, very important and there's also these gala priests in this old world of Sumer and, uh, you know, the Phoenicians and all that stuff. Spelled G-A-L-A, just like the Met Gala. And these gala priests were known to be androgynous and put in their position by Enki. And their only purpose, their sole purpose, was to help people at these, uh, you know, ceremonies and things like this grieve. Um, and, and also they wanted people to worship Inanna. And that's a, one of those seven supreme beings, right? And she's also kind of known as like the love goddess, um, love, war, justice, kind of, you know, weird that love and war would be under one god. But hey, it goes back to the idea that if you're allowed to love, you, uh, we are going to throw war on you as well because the ebb and flow of society needs to be, uh, or the ebb and flow of population rather needs to be there. So, uh... I had an interesting typo when I was looking up this information of Inanna and Gala, and it was nothing but Rihanna news. So it kind of makes you wonder if her name doesn't just come from Rhiannon, but it also comes from one of these old mystery gods too, right? Like the mystery school gods. Inanna, Rihanna, very similar. Um, and then obviously Rhiannon, it's kind of known, but I wonder if it's a combination of Rhiannon and Inanna. Um, dark stuff. Now, with these gala priests, I spelled that out for you and made it, you know, the connection to the Met Gala because the gala in Sumerian translates to penis and anus together. Interesting, right? Kind of lets you know what's going on at those weird get-togethers. Um, not only is there, you know, this connection to this love, war, justice, God, um, there's this this androgynous shit going on. You see a huge androgynous wave in Hollywood. But Gala, I think, makes a reference to the dominance from producers and Hollywood elite and shit like that to these low-level actors. 
Well, guys, thanks for listening so far. If you want to hear the rest of the episode, you know what to do. Patreon.com slash Dangerous World Podcast. I get into more of this crazy shit. And then finish off the episode with a really interesting article comparing, like, old gods of these old religions and old worlds with Christian gods and Christian demons and all these other entities out there. It's fun stuff. I hope you enjoy it. Also scary stuff. So, uh, hope to see you over there at Patreon. And thank you for everything that you do to support the show. Take care, guys. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online Masters of Social Work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu.